You know what this copyright expired song makes me think of? This sounds like the soundtrack to one of those old, old, old cartoons. You know what I mean? Like a really old pre-Steamboat Willie cartoon that's like a really skinny cow with disturbingly prominent udders and she'd be like fishing or something simple like that. And then there's another character and you don't even know what the other character is. You're like, what is that, a dog? Is that a really offensive caricature of an Irishman? It's the 20s, it could be. But the other character, whatever, the dog slash Irishman, whatever it is, is like stealing the fish. And that's the cartoon. And this is the soundtrack to that cartoon. This song is Moon Love by Jack Hilton and his orchestra. You know, last week's song was Indiana Moon. I'll tell you what was huge in 1923. The moon! The moon was hot! In 1923. You know how, like, five years ago, every TV show was suddenly about vampires? In 1923, every manager was telling his artist, you gotta write a song about the moon! The moon's boffo. The moon's the bee's knees. You walk by the thimble factory. What are the kids inside talking about? They're talking about the moon! So there we go. We got a child labor joke. We got a joke about the Irish. That's enough 1920s humor for now. Let's start the podcast. Hello, this is the audio version of I Might Be Wrong. I am Jeff, ooh, how do you say this? Maurer? It's M-A-U-R-E-R. What is that? Mar. I'm going to go with Maurer. I'm Jeff Maurer. This is the audio version of I Might Be Wrong, which is my Substack, where you will find the Roman alphabet version of this article and many, many other articles. Not every article makes it to audio format. So please check that out at imightberwrong.substack.com. Everything is free unless you choose to pay me, uh, which some people do because they are either very nice or they have hit the wrong button on accident. I don't know which it is. I don't really care. I'm spending their money on candy and prostitutes either way. Today's episode is called Let Me Tell You Why I Suck. And yes, that is a Tommy Boy reference. But the episode is about liberals and leftists, which I find interesting because I'm a liberal and liberals and leftists are not really the same thing. We are next to each other on the political spectrum, but we come from different philosophical traditions. And the more I learn about history, the more interested I am in this interplay between liberals and leftists. I find it very interesting, so I wanted to write about it. So... The episode is Let Me Tell You Why I Suck, subheading What a Liberal Can Learn from the Far Left. So, I often wonder, where are the reformist liberals in the second act of Les Mis? Think about it. There is a band of cosplaying as poor college students, led by Marius, who talks a big game about the people, even though he is 100% on the fast track to a middle-class normie life with Cosette. You've got Eponine. She is fighting for liberté, égalité, fraternité, and that beefy slab of man-meat Marius. Not necessarily in that order. And who else? There's Gavroche, an emerging crime boss building a network of thievery and extortion, and whose support for the revolution seems to mostly be born from a Joker-esque thirst for chaos that can only benefit a criminal mastermind like himself. Everyone is a rebel. Everyone is some rakish, 
cockade-wearing leftist manning the barricades with perfectly must Harry Styles hair. Where are the liberals? Where are the lawyers? Kvetching over the conservative turn of the Orleanist monarchy. Where are the academics wringing their hands about a return to the terror? Where's a song titled The Process Through Which Reforms Are Achieved is a Vital Aspect of Conferring Legitimacy. This is liberal erasure. J'accuse, Victor Hugo! J'accuse! You are erasing us. The nearest approximation of a liberal is, of course, Jean Valjean, who is a good-hearted wet blanket, so that's pretty close, but he's not really political. Now, maybe I'm oversensitive. I am definitely oversensitive. But the thing is, number one, I'm a liberal. Number two, I spend a lot of time these days thinking about that awkward coalition between liberals and leftists. It is a shotgun marriage that's lasted for centuries, and its friction points feel as raw as ever. The far left right now, they're kind of having a moment. Elite institutions are increasingly woke, and half of young adults have a positive view of socialism. Liberals, as always, we're hand-wringing. That's what we do. We're worried about the erosion of liberal principles and about handing power over to conservatives. Now, my sympathies, as usual, are with the liberals. But the more I think about history and the history specifically of this perpetually awkward alliance, the more I think that there might be things that the far left can teach me about some of my more annoying liberal tendencies. Liberals and leftists, both would agree, come from different traditions. Liberals come from the tradition of giving up the absolute minimum amount required to assuage one's guilt about being a privileged little fancy lad. That is according to leftists. Leftists, on the other hand, come from the tradition of acting out one's daddy issues in the public square while claiming to speak for the people, even though the people would kind of like to see you crushed by a boulder. That is according to liberals. That is about as far as I'm going to go in trying to define these terms. A detailed attempt to define liberal and leftist, that would probably end up like an attempt to differentiate steampunk from cyberpunk in that it's probably going to produce a lot of yelling in the comments section and not much else. So that's where I'm going to leave it definition-wise. Liberals and leftists do have one thing in common. We both want change. I often think of the political spectrum as a bipolar scale measuring how much a person wants change. Everything's nifty would be the exact center of the scale. Now, on the far left of the scale, you're going to have people like Karl Marx, who saw the status quo as irredeemably corrupt and sought to radically reshape society into some kind of anarcho-hippie Manson family without the murders type thing. Read Marx. It's interesting. Now, to Marx's right are the liberals, and liberals want change, especially the types of change that most people find deeply boring and unsatisfying. On the right side of the scale, you're going to find conservatives who think that things were good until liberals and leftists put society on the slippery slope to hell. And then on the far, far right of the scale, you're going to find the far, far right who long to return to a simpler time 
before the Mexicans slash Normans slash Cro-Magnons slash vertebrates showed up and ruined everything. So that's how I imagine the political spectrum. Now, proximity forces liberals and leftists into a coalition. We are ideologically different. Please see the insulting but accurate descriptions that I offered a few minutes ago. But separate processes lead us to similar spots. Neither group, liberals nor leftists, is big enough to do much on its own, but together we can make a difference. Like a brother and sister who hate each other but join forces to nag their parents to get a dog, it is a coalition born of necessity. The dynamics of that coalition are prominent in the second act of Les Mis. Also prominent, lots of singing from Wolverine and Friends. But we're going to focus on the dynamics of the liberal leftist coalition. Now, the rebellion depicted in Les Mis was a continuation of events that started with the July Revolution of 1830. Let's go back to that. Just for a minute, I promise we'll run through it quickly. France's loss in the Napoleonic Wars had put the Bourbon monarchy back on the throne. By 1830, France was led by King Charles X, which, when written, looks like King Charles X, like Malcolm X, even though King Charles X was about as not in the nation of Islam as a person can possibly be, because he was very conservative. It was led by Charles X. Liberals and leftists both hated Charles X because Charles X favored the nobility, he dissolved Parliament. He even instituted the death penalty for defaming Catholic relics. And if you are looking for a definition of arch-conservative, then a guy who sends someone to the guillotine for taking a whiz in the holy water, that might do pretty well. Eventually, resentment of Charles X boiled over during what's called the Three Glorious Days. Not very glorious for Charles X, but... History has named them the Three Glorious Days of 1830. The straw that broke the camel's back in that situation was a series of edicts restricting the vote and cracking down on the press. Liberals were furious when this happened, and they sprang into action. They had a meeting, and the meeting gave way to an assembly. The assembly was unanimous. They needed a conference. The conference was divided over the need for a huddle versus a confab, and ultimately settled on a powwow by way of compromise. Meanwhile, the leftists were out in the streets kicking ass. Historically, this is a service they provide, and that service was awfully goddamned handy in those days, because, uh, liberals, we don't really do street fighting. Now, these days, in 2021, democracy has made street fighting counterproductive. In modern times, nothing butters the rights biscuit more than footage of anarchist morons trying to create revolution by smashing the windows of a jiffy lube. But in 1830s France, avenues for political expression were a lot more limited, to say the least. So one way to have your voice heard was to tear a few soldiers limb from limb and then see where things go from there. So that's what the leftists were out doing during the three glorious days, and the liberal coalition ultimately did overthrow Charles X. Both members of the team were sorely needed. You needed the liberals to suggest reforms, and you needed the leftists to suggest painful ways for the king to die if the reforms weren't accepted. 
the ending to this whole series of events, it was controversial. Liberals maneuvered to put the thought-to-be more liberal Louis Philippe on the throne, which is a little bit like tunneling out of Alcatraz and straight into San Quentin. Of course, it would have been hard to consent to the far left's demand to declare republic because France's one experiment with leftist-led democracy had produced the terror. That is a capital T, the capital T, terror. That's a problem. (laughs) The leftist (laughs) era of government got a formal capital letter name, and that name is the terror. The far left's reputation in 1830 made it Hard for them to form a government in much the same way John Wayne Gacy's reputation made it hard for him to get work as a birthday clown. Sometimes people really get hung up on your track record. So that was 1830. The Les Mis Revolution of 1832, as it is not called, was an attempt to push out the new king, Louis Philippe. The years in between... 1830 and 1832, by my math, there's roughly two of them. Those years had made the masses of Paris even more teeming than usual. They suffered through food shortages and a cholera epidemic. Doesn't sound fun. And a leftist group called the Society of the Rights of Man, which closely resembles Marius's coterie of boy band rejects, that group did indeed, as you see in the book, movie, and play, plan an uprising centered on the funeral of General Lamarck. That part of the play is pretty accurate, except for the singing, I assume. I guess it would be more precise to say there are no contemporaneous accounts of show-stopping musical numbers, but give or take the singing, that part of the play is accurate. What the play gets right is that the protest was indeed ignited by a man waving a red flag, and a street battle did in fact ensue. What the play leaves out is the part where the people of Paris respond to this action with arousing, what the fuck are you doing? The Society of the Rights of Man thought people would rally to their cause in large numbers. They didn't. The Society of the Rights of Man thought the liberals were on board. They weren't. The Society of the Rights of Man thought the king would be overthrown. He was cheered in the streets. There are actually reports, I love this, of the rebels being told by the citizens, hey, no, you may not use my table for your barricade. Now get the fuck out of my house, please. (laughs) Which I think is a pretty vivid illustration of how leftists often assume they speak for the people, but in reality, they do not. Now, what I take from Les Mis, aside from the fact that you should never sell your teeth in a buyer's market, is that when liberals and leftists unite, they can force change. But when they splinter, the party is over. It seems to me that this pattern repeats itself over and over throughout history. I see this pattern in the revolutions of 1848. I see it in the Reconstruction in the United States, and I see it in the 1960s. The first conclusion that I draw from history about liberals and leftists is that Progress usually only happens when the two groups unite. We might not like each other. We definitely don't like each other. But, unfortunately for us, the slow march of progress only seems to trudge forward 
when each side looks at the other and thinks, eh, good enough. My second conclusion from history is that the liberal tendency towards pragmatism, it can border on pathology sometimes. I think it is good to be pragmatic, especially when your coalition partners are a bunch of pie-eyed maniacs. But liberals, sometimes we are a bit too willing to accept half a loaf. A good example of this, I think, would be voting rights in Europe. Across the continent, the franchise expanded at an extremely slow rate. For all the things that the leftist First Republican France got wrong, and your era doesn't get called the terror unless you get more than a few things wrong, for all the things they got wrong, they were the first in the world to implement universal manhood suffrage. Almost all men in revolutionary France could vote. They let Huguenots vote, for Christ's sake. Huguenots! Insanity! But they let everyone vote. Liberals often have legitimate concerns about playing the hand we're dealt and taking one thing at a time. Those are good concerns. But the fact remains that leftists have a better historical record when it comes to expanding suffrage. And guess what? They also have a better historical record on slavery. My last lesson from history is that I think liberals do best when we aggressively address the economic needs of the poor. I think there's a coherent explanation here. By implementing effective economic policies, we remove the need for leftists to step in (laughs) with their terrible, (laughs) terrible ideas. And boy, howdy, do they have terrible ideas. It is a smorgasbord of simplistic garbage, in my humble opinion. But it is no accident that the Communist Manifesto came at the end of a decade that we call the Hungry Forties. 19th century liberals did a terrible job of blunting the harsh effects of industrialization. 20th century liberals did a lot better. We developed broadly successful programs with a decidedly lefty tinge, like Social Security and Medicare. The leftist impetus to address economic problems, that's enviable. The left succeeds when liberals co-opt that energy and translate it into something that actually works. The most recent liberal leftist joint venture in the United States, to my mind, it was successful. We got rid of Trump. That was a biggie. The current joint venture, the Build Back Better bill, which seems likely to pass Congress, though it's not done yet, That venture is one where enough liberals seem to have recognized that smart, proactive, anti-poverty measures usually work out well for us. And of course, like most things liberals advocate, the bill probably won't lead to a smash hit Broadway musical. Our projects just do not have the verve required for a rousing second act ensemble number. But by learning from history... Liberals can make things we do more boringly effective. And, though we might not like it, boringly effective is, ultimately and unfortunately, who we are. And that's the episode. I encourage you to check out the written version of this episode on imightberwrong.substack.com. There is a good 
discussion in the comments section there. One person pointing out how she feels like she's sharing headspace more these days with <laughs> what she calls legitimate leftists. And like, I get it. I, I feel that too. The, the legitimate leftists, for lack of a better term, we at least share goals. And I'm a lot more interested in talking to them than I am with uh, what you might call the, I don't know, cosplaying leftists, the chic leftists, tourist leftists, whatever they are. Those people, you know, it's like, go finish your Oberlin degree and come back and talk to me later. The legitimate leftists, the thinking leftists, if you want to be a jerk, much like a thinking conservative, I do actually want to talk to those people. I do actually think sometimes I might learn something from them. There's also a good discussion on Twitter. One guy sent me a long passage from Les Mis in the original French, which I do appreciate. Although, though I took two years of French in college, unfortunately, je ne parle the French mucho bien. So thank you for sending that, sir. But I ne le read pas that, because I barely speak it. That's all for this week. I do hope you check out the Substack and like, share, subscribe, blah, 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 blah. The holidays are coming up, specifically that holiday with Jesus and Jimmy Stewart and Santa and the many elves Santa holds in bondage. So I will be taking the next couple of weeks off, but I will be back with new episodes in the new year. So until then, thank you very much for listening and bye for now.